If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm William Saradat. And today we are talking about, it's a topic, it's not necessarily breaking news right now. It's not, we're not talking about the person that caked the Mona Lisa. We're talking about a larger trend, which it kind of goes up and down. It depends on a ton of economic factors, frankly, but there's a lot of buzz about it right now because we are kind of seeing a market boom. We're talking about the larger art market economy and specifically, I guess, a little more about flipping, which is the shorthand term for the practice of a collector buying an artwork from an artist and more or less immediately and immediately meaning maybe within five years or less, turning around and selling that work at auction. Um, there have been waves of flipping and uh, the kind of, again, the trend tends to go along with economic boom, which is a period that we are in right now. Um, kind of, I don't know if we want to call it post pandemic, but it's, it's what's happening right now, um, with the stock market being okay, maybe not as good as it was a little while ago, but collectors are clamoring for certain types of work. And a lot of times this goes along with current trends. Um, I was doing some look back into 2014 and reminding myself about the zombie formalism trend that happened in 2014 when there was a bunch of uh, collectors clamoring and boosting up auction prices of works by young artists who are making mostly abstract work. But this is something that's happening right now. There's a lot of articles about it, and it's happening largely with figurative works by relatively younger artists. Um, So we're going to kind of talk about the implications of these artworks coming up for auction. We're going to talk about what that means for the artist, what that means for the gallerists, and what that means for these artists' longer-term careers, and a little bit of what it means for the collectors, too, because... Everyone's playing a role in this. This is something that gets talked about a lot. The, uh, of course, people love to talk about whenever things sell for a lot of money because an auction record makes headlines and people click on those type of headlines. So also, I think we're fully conscious that we're kind of playing into what's happening right now in the market too, um, and we're just going to sit back and roll with it. Um, William, where do you want to jump off with this conversation? Because there are a couple points that are relevant to the last couple months that we could really dig into. One place that we could start this conversation is uh, the success that Omoako Boafo has had at auction and then his subsequent show at the CAM. Um, he's not the only one. There's also artists like Flora Yuknovich that are doing very well at auction now. She's 31 years old. Um, a couple of her paintings, 2020 and later, have 
sold well above expected prices. Um, I guess for me, I just seeing these auction stories kind of like is reminiscent of the zombie formalism movement we saw. Uh, We read a bunch of articles from 2015, kind of like picking that apart and figuring out uh, what does it mean for the artists whose works sell well beyond expectation? And then more importantly, what does it mean when that market cools and the trend doesn't continue? And what you tend to hear from reading through all of this news reported over the past half decade is that there's a lot of players involved in selling artwork, but the artist is the one that benefits the least um, or even can it can hurt their career. Yeah, I think uh, Amwako Boafo is a really good place to start because, well, first of all, there's a really good article kind of detailing um, his career so far and some of the auction behind the scenes stuff uh, on Artnet News. So we'll link to that in the, the reading list for this. Uh, podcast, check out that reading list too. It's going to be pretty robust. We did a lot of buffing up before we hopped on. Uh, So if you're in Houston or even in Texas, you may recognize his name because currently Amwako Boafo, William, like you mentioned, has a solo show at the Contemporary Arts Museum. Um, As of this podcast recording, it opened like a week or two ago. Um, And it's a solo show and it's kind of a big deal. Um, He is a Ghanaian artist um, and his story, I feel like, mirrors a lot of the younger artists whose work ends up appearing at auction and has a lot of inflation around it, at least over the last, oh, let's say, three years. So he was an artist. He ended up selling batches of paintings to at least one person, if not more people, kind of before before he really had been entrenched in the gallery system. Um, this is emblematic of something that there are people who collect art basically to flip it. It's like speculation. Um, it, it's exactly the same as speculation, actually, of any other sort of asset. They buy in bulk, kind of at discounted prices, earlier in artist's career um, when the artist really needs the money and when $50,000 for 10 paintings is a big deal for that artist. Um, And then a lot of times those speculators, you know, they're investing on that work, they sit on it, or they may start to gradually release it to the market um, once the artist kind of has more pedigree. Or the speculators create or help create some sort of pedigree for that artist. They hook that artist up to a gallery. They may help sell the work by that artist to other collectors just through them, almost like an advisory capacity. Um, and that is some of what happened with Amoako. Uh, of course, the catch is, at least in the American auction market and in many other markets, artists don't get any cut of secondary sales. So artists get money whenever they sell work out of their studio and or whenever they sell from a gallery. But if the buyer of that piece immediately takes it and two years later turns it around for 10 times what the price they bought it for, the collector is the person who reaps all of that reward. And the complication comes from the fact that... Um, because an artist's auction record is so expensive, their primary uh, price that they sell work for from the gallery a lot of times doesn't even reach that record. And 
eventually there could be enough of a gap that it's sort of disassociating with itself and it becomes hard for an artist's career or reputation to match up to to match up to their already overinflated auction price. That's a super crash course into uh, the, the trend as a whole and kind of what we're talking about. Jason Farrago wrote a piece for the New York Times kind of articulating uh, rather eloquently the ways in which art as an an asset of like indistinct value or like an asset that kind of relies on external factors to value it rather than he says that sculpture can't be valued against objective criteria like the four c's you have for diamonds um there's kind of more of a middleman scenario happening and he as well as other critics that i read in preparation for this have stated that there was kind of a paradigm post-war, post-World War II, that critics, curators, writers, the press, museums, these are all part of a greater network that matriculate art through their system, and that indicates value, which the market responds to. However, in a boom cycle like we're experiencing now, it seems to be that... uh, that process is not necessary um, and that it's almost happening backwards. Like the artwork can be speculated on, sold very highly, and then make its way through the institutions or that like a big sale is what indicates to the greater public, oh, this is important. You should be paying attention. Um, I don't want to imbue this conversation with too much about like nfts or crypto but i will just say that there are some parallels like with beeple's sale um jason farrago also finishes his article saying it is painting not the nft that became the archetypal medium of personal marketing and digital folly um which i think is just such an interesting sentence yeah, it really comes down to the stuff that's popular and that makes headlines continuously like this is stuff that's relatively easy to store or relatively easy to hang on your dining room wall. Like, that just kind of is the reality of the market. And I feel like we've seen fluctuations every now and then, but I feel like it always comes back to traditional mediums that people are familiar with and that people can get behind as art objects with a capital A and a capital O. Um, William, to your point of the auction houses or these these sale prices essentially kind of dictating who the new up-and-coming worthy quote-unquote artists are, in one of the articles that we read, there was a rep from Christie's who said, she said the quiet part out loud. She said, quote, we're defining what will be the next great generation of artists, Ultimately, the market will decide that. And I feel like I haven't seen someone who's in the industry or who's in the auction industry actually say what they're trying to do or say that's what's happening. There's a lot of critics who are critical of the market and critical of the way that auction houses do this to artists or the way that collectors do this to artists because everyone is kind of implicit in the cycle. Um, But her statement was the first time I've ever heard anyone actually be like, this is what's happening. These are the artists who are important and that's it. I mean, Brandon, do you think that the gatekeepers of 
valuable art or what's the most relevant culture uh, to the extent of it having a price point. Do you think that the gatekeepers have shifted? I feel like, so if we're comparing what's happening right now in 2022 to what happened in 2014, when it was a bunch of like young white dudes making zombie formalism that was abstracted, um, I feel like oftentimes these market trends... I mean, they are market trends for a reason. They're following what's popular right now and the general uh, feeling or the general vibe of the industry or uh, what should be happening and maybe throw quotes around that should. So what's happening right now is a lot of these auction prices, people who are selling for four times, five times, ten times their auction estimates, it's female artists or artists of color. Um, and it's a lot of figurative work right now also. And part of that is, you know, everyone's attempt to be so much more inclusive of artwork that hasn't traditionally been viewed. Um, like some of the articles, William, we were reading in prep for this talked about how there are a lot of artists out of Ghana who are taking on the role of market speculation, or rather who are being put in that position by people buying their art. Um, And I think part of it is people see female artists and artists of color as an almost sort of untapped potential financially, which, you know, it's, it's, in a way, it's almost another form of exploitation because it's still the same people, generally speaking, with the money who are able to do this, they're just betting on, you know, different, different people or different uh, people who haven't been included before. Um, that said, a, a lot of auction houses are reporting newly moneyed people or people from a more diverse array of backgrounds or from many more countries now participating in the market. And I feel like part of that is just the democratization that's come as a result of the internet and a result of Instagram. Um, Like back in 2014, I was reading an interview with Stefan uh, Simschewitz, who is kind of one of the legendary art speculators, but he was talking about how things have changed because of the internet. And that has only been exacerbated. I feel like over the last eight years, Um, And it's still very true, and I feel like uh, the auction houses have really responded by, like, starting to accept cryptocurrency even for tangible artworks. Or, you know, there's there's a bit of a... uh, I I feel like we've said this before on Art Dirt also, there's a bit of a an attempt by the powers that be to widen the audience, but widening the audience is really only making it more accessible for the people who are in the 1% to participate in the system. Yeah, that's interesting. As I was reading about this subject, uh, Instagram comes up a couple times and that just made me remember like in most conversational situations in the past couple years, it seems that gallerists will just admit that they're finding a lot of their roster on Instagram now. Um, And so that means that artist may not be local. They may not be nearby. They may not have even gone to art school. Um, And that is all well and good because Instagram does allow you, it allows artists to post what they're working on and it allows anyone to see that. Um, the intermediary being 
Instagram um, rather than say like checking out art schools, going on studio visits of people that are matriculating through the educational system, the curatorial system. Um, yeah, I, I, I have unresolved feelings about it because it seems on the one hand, it's like really convenient and it, it's very frictionless for a certain group of people. But then also it's like, well, what if you have invested a lot of your blood, sweat and tears through the conventional channels? Um, but you're not super good at Instagram. So people, so you don't get those calls from the gallerists. It's, it's not exactly like anyone's fault, I would say. And it, it doesn't, a hundred percent correlate to what's happening in in uh, the auction world, but it does just kind of go to show that the internet, um, like you mentioned, Brandon, the democratization of this whole practice, just has different outcomes. And the fact that we're seeing these young female and POC artists succeed in auctions right now shows that I don't know the market kind of does what it wants and it, it rolls with the punches in terms of like what tools it can use to do that. The Center for the Advancement and Study of Early Texas Art, or CASETA, is pleased to present their 18th annual symposium and Texas Art Fair on Friday, June 10th through Sunday, June 12th at the Hilton Lincoln Center in Dallas. The event will feature a variety of lectures and conversations revolving around early Texas art, along with an accompanying art fair. To see a complete list of events and to register for the program, please visit www.caseta.org. That's C-A-S-E-T-A dot org. It was really interesting going back and looking at those artists who were a part of the 2014 zombie formalism boom and seeing how many of them really are a continuing part of the larger art conversation right now. Um, and I mean the larger art conversation that like permeates, I don't know, permeates farther than just the insular conversation happening if you're in a Chelsea gallery. Like, the larger part of the art conversation that reaches down to Texas here, where would a, a Texan artist who's, you know, reading larger publications, who is tapped into the art world, would they remember this name? And I feel like quite a few of those instances, it was no, and it's not because the Texans... Uh, the Texas art community isn't educated. It's because that name hasn't come up in such a long time. Um, and I can only wonder, I mean, we always are in the moment or kind of wowed by the, uh, wowed by the prices and all of these articles are written. And <laughs> William, you and I talk about it on art dirt. And then five years later, it's like forgotten. And it's like, who is that artist that sold for 2000 times their estimate? Like, I don't I don't remember who that was. Yeah, I mean, art is like fashion. Um fashion is both an industry and kind of like a a term, a noun that describes things being fashionable. Things come in and out of fashion very quickly. It often is done uh 
off the backs of young people or by using their image likeness and brand. Um, and everybody does not make it. So of all, of all the valuable things that art and the creative industries bring us, they bring us beautiful things, they bring us joy, they move the conversation faster than other pillars of our society do, like law or medicine, those things are highly regulated and we want them to move kind of slowly because we want to have a stable society. Art is not really like that. Um, and that's partially why it's really exciting. But from the industry sense, from the commercial sense, it means that like there's going to be big winners and big losers and they're going to come hard and fast. I mean, would you agree with that, Brandon? Or what are your thoughts? I agree with that. I feel like... Well, I feel like this conversation would be so much different if artists got a chunk of those auction results, too, because currently I feel like people are a little bit trying to rethink the model with which they form their careers, and there are artists who haven't been in the system and don't come from families of artists and who really need the gallerists in order to help time things out so that their careers don't turn into a tailspin. Um, but at the same time, there are people like Damien Hurst who debuts a new body of work at an auction house and bypasses the gallery system entirely. Like, to my knowledge, Amwako Boafo hasn't given a work to an auction house out of his studio to sell. And part of that is because I bet his gallery would advise against it, as many galleries would, um, but I would be curious to see what happens if more artists tried to go that route. Like, it would it help sustain them in a different way? It would definitely give them a nest egg if something were to uh, were to flop. It might also make galleries not work with them. William, like you've kind of mentioned, this is all off of the backs of artists who largely see the least profit. Um, and everybody wants a piece, like. So many gallerists, I, I don't want to discount galleries either here in this situation because so many gallerists do really good work and are strong advocates for their artists and make so much happen um, and take away that sort of business side management so that the artist can focus on making the work. So there's a ton of people doing really, really good work in good faith. But at the same time, everybody wants a piece, and there's people who step in and intercept and might talk to an artist and get the artist to believe that they're on their side when they're actually thinking 10 years down the line in terms of flipping. Or, like, there's there's all of these complications because all of this is just dealing with people. Like, it comes down to it, the art... I mean, the art, sure, it has an intrinsic value, but ultimately the art is worth as much as anyone wants to pay for it, which means it's kind of worthless because if no one wants to pay for it, that piece isn't selling. Um, so it's just, a, it, it's just on the economic side, there's so many complicated factors at play that I don't even, I, I don't even know if I can try and predict anything that's happening or coming because, because who can? at this point <laughs> right maybe this is a naive question but um of course we want artists to get compensated and art is actually a rare asset in that it does not uh distribute royalties after it's being after it's created and distributed um most other forms of 
creative commerce, uh, it's it's regulated. It's kind of built in. But with art, that doesn't happen. Um, do you think that if there was a nominal 1% royalty attributed to an artwork that goes to the artist, beyond getting the artist some compensation for their work after its initial sale, do you think that would kind of like create a healthy incentive for works not to get speculated on too much or at least it would like benefit the artist if if their works become a subject of zombie formalism that's hard because it would benefit the artist very much in the short term so it's like the artist would see i mean let's bump it up to 10 percent. the artist would see thirty thousand dollars off of a three hundred thousand dollar piece like that that would be good it would also be complicated because then the artist would be receiving more from a 10% royalty than they're selling work for on the primary market, which gets into a whole, like, I can only imagine that that's a whole kind of, it messes with your mind, <laughs> frankly. Um, but I think it doesn't combat the long-term issue of the price. The auction price is still the price. If they're getting 10%, that's great. But if it's, what's that actually going to do if the artist has to sustain themselves for another 50 years? Because so much of this conversation that we're having today is also about artists who are under 40. So one of the actually really interesting moments was, I think it was in the documentary, The Price of Everything, uh, and it was Ninjeka Akudili Crosby. She was talking about how one of her pieces had just gone at auction for, uh, forgive me, I think it was something like $1.2 million or something kind of outrageous considering her primary market prices. And she was talking about how hard it was to go to the studio the day after the auction and start working on these artworks that were now all of a sudden worth five times, however many times what they were the day before. And just kind of, she, she, this was one of the rare instances where I've actually been able to hear an artist talk through that complication and how it changed their relationship with their own work. Um, And I think, I I think we pay a lot of attention to the flippers and the markets and we put the blame on everyone and like rightfully so, because like I said, everyone's complicit in this, but we don't think about like internally what it's doing to these artists because they are obviously contradictorily they're the people with the least power in this situation even though it's their work yeah i mean if the value of your labor or your product uh could rampantly swing up and down at a moment's notice and you had literally no recourse for (laughs) for controlling that in any way um that would almost certainly do a number on you like you said, Brandon, even if it's on the upside, even if even if you woke up one day and you, and you found out, oh, wow, my painting went for $100 million at Christie's, I guess I got to go to the studio and do some scribbles and not think about that too much. It's like, how would you do that? Um, yeah, I mean, reading about this topic has been fascinating because it articulates, again, the just completely muddy ethical relationship that all players have to each other, even even with rules in place, even with regulations and formal rules and informal rules. Um, 
and it creates it it just articulates a lot of really interesting problems that don't have fast or easy solutions um and it it makes you empathize with people that have made it their vocation to studiously create visual art i agree however <laughs> i feel like that empathy is mostly um felt by industry people like it's felt by the the gallery directors who are working with the artists or the artist reps at the galleries who are working with the artists it's felt by the critics who at this point have no market power anymore like if roberta smith or jerry saltz or william saradet writes a critical review panning an artist's work that's not gonna affect an artist market there's still going to be people to buy it there's still going to be a waiting list if there was a waiting list before um i think it's felt by people who can really empathize with the artists who generally speaking are not the mega collectors who are dealing with this situation yes um that is something that came up more than once or twice uh reading about this topic Brandon, which is that the critics, the sort of like cognoscenti class uh, that supposedly was more powerful post-war, um, I wouldn't know, I wasn't there, uh, that relationship has kind of like either been subsumed by our like web 2.0 communications infrastructure um, or it's been dissolved by something else. Um, and that I think is like frustrating, uh, and a little disappointing because for me personally, I, I do derive some of my knowledge and understanding of the world from people that I put my trust into, um, intellectuals, writers, people with professional experience in a number of fields that are willing to go on the record and speak their opinion and speak their mind. So to hear from <laughs> the, the very like publication class from like newspapers and journalists that the market power of criticism has been eroded, that it makes, that's one of the things I want people to like hear more and more like over and over again. Um, that's just my personal stance because I want if that's true, I think everyone should know that um, and we should maybe make a little bit of an effort to like give some power back to the people. I'm I'm biased. Of course, I want writers to have a say and to have a voice that has value, but also because I don't necessarily want a communications conglomerate like Meta to have the total like distributive power of like controlling who does and doesn't get attention should well here's here's one of the flip sides that i feel like i also see in this conversation should art critics be this applies to us right now should art critics be paying attention to or talking about the market because people like tim schneider who reports on like art business for artnet news like he obviously should be talking about the market um should people though like roberta smith or like william saradet or like christopher knight or kind of or peter sheldahl for the new yorker should they be paying attention to auction sales because does that 
in an impactful way or in a way that matters one way or the other, does that color them writing about certain art or certain artists or certain galleries even? Um, That's a good question. And there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of answers to that. I think that the market, the invisible hand is kind of its own record that maybe doesn't really require an audience. It's one of the few empirical things in the art world. Um, The numbers are posted, the sale went through, uh, and it's going to impact future sales. And in some way it has been impacted by past sales. Does it matter if people have opinions on it? Mm, Maybe less than, than more. How, and also I think that like critics maybe have you could argue better business to attend to than to comment on what's really popular at the auction today. Um, I wouldn't say ignore it. I certainly don't ignore it. Um, But I think it's a good question, Brandon. And I think it's a good response to my statement that I want writers to have power, which is that, well, I mean, maybe writers, maybe like the intellectual class and the auction salespeople, the auction houses are categorically at odds with each other and they shouldn't mix and mingle too much because that's just an inherently compromised relationship. And with that, I think we're going to leave this conversation there. Uh, we're not going to go on for another 40 minutes about this right now, but I know we could. Um I, I am a big fan, I'll repeat it again, I'm a big fan of the reading list that we put together for this episode. I think it if this is something you've never really thought about or something that's been a minute since you have thought about, it's a good kind of refresher into some of the politics that are at play, larger than just artists having shows at museums and galleries. Um, so take a look at that. Um, William, do you have any final thoughts to take away from this? I just, uh, there was a quote in Jason Farrago's piece for the New York Times. He, in turn, references Oscar Wilde uh, from Oscar Wilde's book, Lady Windermere's Fan. And the sentence is, the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. That is a uh, good place to leave this conversation. (laughs) Uh, With that, thank you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new Art Dirt. And until then, we hope you get out and go see some art. Go see some art. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Cassetta, the Center for the Advancement and Study of Early Texas Art, and their 18th Annual Symposium in Texas Art Fair, which is happening on Friday, June 10th through Sunday, June 12th at the Hilton Lincoln Center in Dallas, Texas. The event will feature a variety of lectures and conversations revolving around early Texas art, along with an accompanying art fair. To see a complete list of events and to register for the program, please visit www.cassetta.org. That's C-A-S-E-T-A dot org.
This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.